2: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy naldith on Zoom. Connecticut is among nine states that does not allow no excuse, or doesn't allow no excuse absentee ballots or mail-in voting. Coming up, Secretary of the State Denise Merrill will join us to talk about what she wants Connecticut lawmakers to do to keep voters safe, especially if social distancing must continue during this year's elections in August and November. Now, are you a local town registrar or worker at a polling site in Connecticut? want to hear from you that's coming up first the governor's office is working on a plan to reopen connecticut one of the hardest hit cities is stanford with the largest number of confirmed COVID cases in the state how will stanford reopen especially with its close proximity to new york city joining us now for our conversation on zoom is stanford mayor david martin Uh, mayor martin can you hear me
3: yes i can lucy good morning
2: I want to let our listeners know they can join us as well. The number 888-720-9677, that's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And Mayor Martin, I mentioned that Stanford has the largest number of confirmed COVID-19 cases at this point, uh, more than a month since the state uh, shut down. Uh, how many tests does your city need uh, to be testing per week to protect its residents, and where are you right now?
3: Well, early on, I announced um, as we were expanding a testing capacity, where we were partnering with other private companies in order and using city resources to do more testing. I said I want ten thousand a week, and I still believe that that's appropriate—the appropriate, uh, appropriate number—and we're nowhere close to that. Um, and the matter of fact is, the testing uh, across the nation is so disorganized and so short but I can't even tell you how many tests we're doing per week. I know that we've been able to get some testing capacity down here, and so we're expanding the testing, but uh, we're a long way away from where we need to be with testing.
2: Hmm. So how many drive-through sites does the City of Stanford have, and do any of them offer rapid results, Mayor
3: Martin? Well, we have a drive-through site with Stanford Hospital. We have a drive-through site that we partner with Murphy Associates at our one of our parks, Cummings Park. We have another um, person that we um, partner with, but it's not drive-through. And then we had another drive-through site that we had at West Hill High School, but we've shut that down. And instead, um, this last weekend, we started going to the places where we know that the coronavirus was. So we had three. Um, you know, we're going to bring the testing to you. And um, we had lines um, on Saturday afternoon of, you know, I I don't know how many tests were done, but when I was there, you know, we had close to a 100 people lined up um, wanting to have testing done.
2: When you say that you're going to where people need to be tested, does that mean nursing homes? Or tell me a little bit more about this.
3: Well, so early on, um, I announced that we were testing all of our first responders. That's fire, police, the people that run the 911, and of course, our ambulance service. And we've tested about 550. We haven't gotten to everyone for a variety of reasons. And we discovered about 20 more cases of coronavirus where people were asymptomatic. That is, they had no symptoms, but they did have the virus. And of course, knowing that we're able to help protect them and their family and their fellow workers, but also protect the public. So that was first on the list. The next thing was we went to the nursing homes and assisted care, and we made an announcement of whether they have testing capacity or not. We now have been able to establish some a little bit of testing capacity, and so we offered to test all of the employees at nursing homes and assisted care facilities, and that is in progress now and some facilities have taken full advantage of that, and as you might expect, some are a little bit slow to respond, but maybe that they have their own testing. The last phase of this is that we've been able to finally get through to get some data so that we can actually see the cases that are occurring by address. And in addition to the nursing homes and the assisted uh, senior care facilities, which of course you could guess at, um and where we had some data we now know specific addresses in stanford and they tend to be um, certain apartment buildings and we are now bringing the the testing capacity to that location and saying to every resident in that building as far as i'm concerned you've been exposed if you're in this building and we have a half a dozen cases or we have 10 cases in this building and we are coming to that building and we have the nurses and the doctors and um, we register ahead, but even if you don't register, you still come and we'll figure out how to get it done. And if you don't have insurance, we'll get you insurance. And if we can't get you insurance, we'll still do it for free because this is a public health advantage to find out who it is that's been um, infected and to find those people who may be asymptomatic, but are in fact, don't realize it. It's not necessarily their fault. But they might be spreading the disease until we find out they're positive and suddenly, you know, the, the the behavior changes. But that how that's how we fundamentally stop this disease. It isn't just through the contact tracing. It is when you do the contact tracing, are you testing the people that have been exposed? And so you can identify where this thing is spreading and put a stop to it.
2: When you talk about uh, certain apartment buildings that you're going to and having people uh, tested are these uh, demographics in terms of are they older residents or are they these people throughout your uh, city that are getting this uh, coronavirus
3: they tend to be larger apartment buildings where they um, may not be the richest apartment buildings in the world they tend to come from the middle socioeconomic strata and the lower socioeconomic strata. Um, It's not that they are older. And what we're finding is the spread of coronavirus doesn't care about your age. The fatalities do. And if you're over 70 years old and you get coronavirus, and if you have other comorbidities, then you are definitely um, at risk of a fatality or a serious, serious battle with this terrible disease. Um, If you're younger, you still get it and you can still spread it. And so the incident rates, you know, at least what I've seen so far, and I'm not claiming to be the the doctor. The incident rates um, seem to be um, broad based, but they do tend to run in the minority communities and the lower socioeconomic communities. Um, But the fatalities are, if you're over 70, um, you're going to have a battle with this, and you are seriously at risk. So what we were doing is we weren't we um, first were targeting the assisted care facilities that are primarily seniors. But now we're moving to, this is where the virus is. This is and, and I don't really care if, who's, who's there in terms of their ethnic or their socioeconomic or their demographics. This is where the virus is. Let's go there and make certain that we can test everyone there. And the outpouring of people um, at the facilities that, the, that we went to last Saturday, Um, really showed that they are responding to the fact that tests are now becoming available, or at least for us, some capacity of tests are becoming available so that we can help them through this pandemic.
2: You're here in Stanford, Mayor David Martin here on Where We Live. He's joining us on Zoom. I'm on Zoom today as well. You can join us too, 888 WMPR. That's 888 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You know, I started off this segment, Mayor, talking about Stanford having the largest number of confirmed COVID-19 cases. How much of that uh, plays into the fact that you're so close to New York City, which has been the epicenter of uh, this disease in this region?
3: Um, I, I think that's 90% of it. Um, I believe that we are doing more testing than a lot of communities. I, I can't tell because I don't have reliable data on how much testing is going on. And if you do more testing, you'll find more cases. And that's part of it. But I would say that you're right, Lucy. It's We are the closest um, metro urban center to New York City we have over 30,000 people getting on and off our train station every day well not now but was before and um we have have a large um socioeconomic community that is at risk and you put those three things together and we end up with a lot of cases and a lot of fatalities in fact i think as of saturday we had identified 142 fatal fatalities and you know it, it's a statistic in aggregate, but at an individual level, you know, it's it's a loved one, it's a parent or a brother or a son um, that's lost their life to this disease, and it's tragic. It's absolutely tragic. Um, but what we're seeing, at least with the data that I'm seeing, is that we've got the most cases on a per capita basis. And guess who comes in really close? It's the towns that are just a little bit further away from New York, um, Norwalk and danbury and waterbury all are reporting high incidence of positive cases per capita um, but on a fatality basis while it's terrible on a per capita basis we're doing about the same as the rest of lower fairfield county um in terms of the um the fatalities per capita and we're doing statistically about the same as um waterbury and danbury and i you know, it doesn't make me feel better, Lucy. It does not. But I think it's an indication that this virus was spreading up the metro north line. It was spreading up um, towards Danbury um, and up that way. Um, and that's the vector through which it's entering this state. So we're sort of at the tip of the spear and getting blunted by this disease. I think that's a terrible analogy, but um, we're struggling with it. But I think we're going to come out of this all right Um um, except for, of course, the loss of life um, that's occurred, and it's devastating. It's devastating.
2: Well, Mayor, I have to ask, we hear uh, that, you know, Connecticut Governor uh, Ned Lamont and others are talking about reopening the state in phases, you know, what's your take in terms of the fact that, you know, you said at the top of the show that you don't even know how many tests are really uh, being given uh, per week, Uh, you have people that are still uh, getting this, uh, this disease, and some are dying in Stanford, you know, how confident are you that your city will be able to open, reopen? in the next month or two and what's your take on the governor's reopening plans
3: well the i think the governor is is mostly in the right direction and if if we can get mostly in the right direction during this pandemic that's pretty damn good um that's that's a technical term lucy um you know we are having the trend down in total hospitalization so that's a good thing but having said that um as of i think it was saturday there were more than 500 hospitalized in lower Fairfield County, that's still more than double what it was one month ago. So the trend line is down, but it's still very high. In Stanford, I think our seven day moving average is that we still are reporting about 25 new cases a week, but it is coming down. And now that we're beginning to isolate where the coronavirus actually is, I think we're better able to deal with it. we did not close our parks. We did not close our beaches in Stamford like many communities did. Um, we kept our golf courses open for the most part, and I can tell you very directly, I pivoted our our traffic enforce our, our our parking enforcement people to do parks patrol, and for 98 99% of the people it was not an issue, and I saw hundreds thousands of people walking through our parks or jogging in our on our trails. And um, observing social distancing, that's not where the disease was spreading. So at least that for us, we've got our tennis courts open. We've got our our, um, golf courses open. We are watching it every single day. And if we can't handle it, and I put out an appeal to my residents, don't force me to close the parks. Um, I did have to take the basketball hoops down. And for a while we had the tennis courts shut down. I had to take the nets down. But in terms of reopening, I think the critical thing is these small businesses, particularly in Stanford, we had a very robust small business um, um, environment down here. And I I think that by May 20th, inching forward is probably the right thing, but I do call it inching forward. And I don't know what the rules are that the governor is working on, Um, but I think at about that date is probably righteous. And if it's a week later or it's a little bit before, as long as we have some clear understanding of how we're going to um, reopen. Are the hair salons, when they open, is it going to be that the chairs cannot be more than 10 feet from each other? Um, When the restaurants open, is it going to be a a rule that I imposed early in, in, in this thing here in Stanford was, all of the rooms, if, it, if a fire marshal said it was 100 people that could be in that room, I said it's now 50. We cut it in half. Well, is that going to apply to the restaurants? How are we going to put the tables out if we go outdoors? Uh, there's a variety of details, and the devil is in the details. But I think generally, um, we're moving. If we inch along in that direction, I think that's the right direction to go. But I can tell you, with more cases of coronavirus here in Stamford, and more fatalities in stanford we're going to be very very careful about that um and i will be direct i you know there's still some question about the schools opening or closing i don't think we can reopen the schools um i don't think we can switch our learning procedures that quickly um and in addition the challenge of how do you manage um you know 22 or 25 or 21 kids in a classroom um. Should they all be wearing masks? How would should be sanitizing their hands? And to try to do all of that in the last three weeks of schools, I think is going to be an insurmountable task. And so we'll probably keep the schools closed. Um, I think that's the right decision. But in any event, um, we do have to keep the economy going. Stanford has probably been hit harder by the economy, not just because we have more cases and more fatalities. But we had a very robust small business. We have a very robust large business, and both of them have been substantially wounded. And I believe that we're going to end up being one of the most wounded economic cities in the state as well, Uh, not just from a disease standpoint, but from an economic standpoint.
2: Well, we'll be sure to check in with you in the next few months. Uh, David Martin, again, is mayor of the city of Stanford. Thank you for joining us today here on Where We Live.
3: Thank you, Lucy.
2: Coming up right after the break, are you worried about voting in Connecticut's August primary and the November election because of COVID-19? Secretary of the State Denise Merrill will join us to talk about how her office plans to address this concern and others. And what questions do you have for her? Here's the number, 888-720-9677. That's 888 720 wmpr Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel on Zoom today. Now, the governor moved Connecticut's presidential primary a couple times. Now, the date's August 11th because of safety concerns at the polls during the pandemic. No one knows if those concerns will still be top of mind later this summer. But the state's top elections official says Connecticut lawmakers or the governor could do something Guarantee Connecticut voters the chance to vote safely and that is expanding access to absentee ballots or mail-in voting Joining us now on zoom is Denise Merrill Connecticut secretary of the state Uh, Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Lucy. Nice to be back So we know that this is something that a lot of residents, voters are worried about in terms of voting. You can just look at other states like Wisconsin to see what happened uh, when people are also fearful of catching this virus. This morning, your office is releasing a plan to address voting concerns related to the pandemic not only how to keep voters and poll workers safe, uh, but also making elections more accessible to everyone. So I guess let's break it down first, uh, Secretary of State uh, Merrill. Let's talk first about the safe polls plan. Uh, What exactly is this and uh, how are you moving forward?
4: Well, uh, we should recognize, first of all, that we're facing an enormous challenge. Uh, We are having two elections. Uh, The first is, as you say, the primary, which is still on, Uh, It will be August 11th, along with our statewide primary, which always happens at that time. And um, we don't really know. The hallmark of all of this is uncertainty. And I think it was ramped up even further um, beyond what people are already feeling when they saw pictures of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, when they held their primary and miscalculated how many people were going to show up at the polls because I think they made the assumption that more people would request absentee ballots. So we have to be prepared for either, frankly, and we don't know where we're gonna be in August, much less in November for the general election. There are of course predictions that we may have a resurgence of the virus by then. So this is our challenge. And we have to also remember with all this that we still have cybersecurity risks going on. There are still foreign actors continuing to launch cyber attacks against election systems throughout the United States. Connecticut's no exception. And so we have to deal with our cybersecurity risks as well. So uh, fortunately, we were able to get um, some federal funding, uh, thanks to our federal delegation, to help us deal with this one-time situation. And I really want to stress that this is a one-time situation, we hope, uh, and that, the plan I'm launching is really specifically to deal with the primary and the general election in the fall. So our first priority is to secure the polling places uh, because this is why people are fearful of going to the polling places because of what they saw in Milwaukee and a very real threat, that particularly if you're over the age of 65, uh, if you're in certain risk categories, you don't wanna risk your health and no one should have to risk their health in order to vote. So that's our first priority is to secure the polling places. And that's what our safe polls plan will do. It will uh, have the municipalities come forward with a plan to uh, adjust polling places if needed. We will help them get uh, cleansing products, safety products, and make sure they have an emergency plan should anything go wrong. And a number of other ways we can help the towns with the federal funding to make the polling places secure. There are uh, 800 polling sites in Connecticut, is that right? Uh, Somewhere around there, and yes, we will be able to adjust those if necessary. Some of them are very small. I mean, the problem in Connecticut is that um, we have 169 towns, all very different from each other. Some have, about 50% of them only have one polling place, but sometimes that won't be a, a big enough spot to be able to um, you know, take care of social distancing and all the things we've been told to do through an emergency order. So uh, we will allow towns, uh, if they plan ahead, to move polling places in some instances, We'll be very cautious about uh, canceling polling places. You saw what happened in Milwaukee. Uh, So particularly in urban areas, I think we'd be cautious about eliminating polling places. Mm -hmm. But yes, that would be part of the plans the towns would submit.
2: You mentioned this plan a couple of times that all municipalities will have to submit to your office Um, once they do they'll get grants to help with cleaning supplies, but what about adding uh, personnel Uh, not only um, at their elections office, but in terms of poll workers. Many people who uh, I don't want to say volunteer because they do get paid, but when they're working at the polls, a lot of times uh, they're older and we know this population is is most at risk for this virus, Secretary Merrill. And so I'm wondering how can the state work to get younger poll workers if, in fact, uh, elections go forth as usual?
4: Yes, I honestly, I think that's our biggest challenge. Uh, we've known for years that this problem was coming. Uh, most of our poll workers, as you say, are elderly. Um, and for many years now, it's starting to become a problem finding poll workers anyway. So we are going to launch a program from the state level to recruit what I call a new generation of poll workers. And you know right now there are lists at the, in the governor's office of people who want to volunteer, people who are out of work, people who are unemployed, students who are home. And so we are going to attempt to recruit volunteers, but we'll be able to pay them with the federal funds. So that will help the towns enormously. So part of the plan they will submit to us will tell us how many new poll workers they need and anticipate, and then we'll be able to try to match up volunteers and others um, who might want to work in the polls. And it's a great civic opportunity for people. I think right now people do want to help out and they do want to do these kinds of jobs in their communities. And I think this is a perfect opportunity for, for us to do just that.
2: You're hearing Denise Merrill, Connecticut Secretary of the State, as we talk about uh, her plan uh, to make sure that elections in Connecticut, both in August and November, are safe and accessible. If you have a question for Secretary of State Denise Merrill, the number 888-720-WNPR. That's 888-720-9677. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Before I talk about absentee ballots, Secretary Merrill, you 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 keep mentioning this plan that towns have to uh, put forth. Uh, We know that our election system in Connecticut is very decentralized. What have you been hearing from local registrars about what they need uh, to make sure that people can vote?
4: Uh, Well, we've been hearing about poll workers. We've had uh, weekly conference calls with registrars and town clerks. You have to remember that town clerks are the ones that process absentee ballots. Uh, It's a kind of unusual system, but all all offices are brought into this. And so uh, there is, of course, concern that there will be more people wanting absentee ballots, fewer people coming to the polls, but the safety of the polls, the capacity of the polls to accommodate social distancing, these are all big issues for towns. And, of course, the cost of all this. Uh, So I think... um, our idea, that's why we need so much time in advance to plan all this. You can see this is a big job for the towns. They have to figure out in whatever way they can what they think is going to happen. And it's still an open question as to how many people end up requesting absentee ballots and how many people want to do what they've always done, which has come to the polls. Traditionally, about between 5 and 8% of people vote absentee, and mostly because they're going to be out of town. Uh, This section of our statutes that talks about how you can get an absentee ballot if you're unable to get to the polls due to sickness is sort of something no one has used very often, honestly. Uh, Now we're anticipating more people will ask for absentee ballots, but uh, that still means we have to have safe polling places, because I still think most people will go to the polls. Uh,
2: People have been asking to have uh, the ability to vote by absentee uh, because they're worried about going to a polling place, as you mentioned, uh, because of that we're in this pandemic. So explain to us again uh, why Connecticut is one of nine that makes it so difficult, uh, one of nine states that makes it so difficult to vote absentee. And what do we need to see happen uh, between now and and August uh, to give residents more accessibility?
4: Well, um, first, uh, you know, I have to explain this again, and it is kind of complicated because Connecticut is one of only, I believe, now two states that have provisions for absentee ballots in the state constitution, which is very difficult to change, very long process. It has to be uh, voted on by the General Assembly as a constitutional amendment. Then it has to go on the ballot, and everyone in the state would vote on it. So obviously, we cannot turn on a dime with the state constitution. So those provisions, ironically, I think, were put in in the 1818 constitution in order to liberalize uh, uh, voting. At that time, there was no provision for voting except in person at your town hall. And so um, so it's been in place all these years through two constitutions, and um, so far it's it's still in place. No one ever anticipated a pandemic And so now we have to work with that. There's also a statute uh, that regards, you know, how you can get an absentee ballot, who would qualify. The statute is somewhat more limiting uh, than the state constitution. And so we're trying to work with these definitions to be able to enable voters, as I said, not to have to choose between their health and their vote. Uh, And I I would just say this plan that I'm producing today does not change the law. Uh, it, it, it just, uh, the, the first thing I think we're able to do to make this easier for people to get an absentee ballot is we are going to mail an application for an absentee ballot to every eligible primary voter for the primary. And that way, at least people will know what their rights are know what know if they fit into the law, and then be able to mail that back. We'll, we'll, we'll also send them an envelope and a stamp so that they can mail that back and get an absentee ballot from their town. So I think that will help at least clarify for the voters what their rights are and what they should do in this situation. Uh, beyond that, uh, I would need an executive order from the governor or action by the legislature to change the statute. They cannot even change the state constitution, but there are some changes that might be made in statute to help everyone. For example, the governor is very concerned about people over 65 going to the polling places. Uh, I don't know if we'll be able to do something about that, but by executive order, he might be able to do that.
2: So when you mentioned that every eligible voter will be mailed an absentee ballot application, will that happen regardless uh, if the legislature or the governor don't act uh, to make uh, mail-in voting easier?
4: Oh, yes. Uh, An application uh, is mailed. Usually you download them from my office website. Applications can be sent to anyone by my office. This is just an effort to help the towns with the cost of mailing. That's one of the problems at the town level. If, there, if Our absentee ballot uh, process is, very, is full of checks and balances. Uh, you have to get an application. You have to mail that application back or take it in. The town clerk then has to check you off a list and then mail out the absentee ballot. You have to mail that back inside a separate envelope. I mean, it's very, very time consuming and paper heavy. Uh, And so one of the things we thought we could take the burden off the towns was the mailing of these applications. Uh, It's very important. We're not mailing out ballots, as they do, by the way, in many states. Uh, We are mailing the applications simply to simplify the process, at least somewhat, for the towns.
2: But I imagine, Secretary of the State Denise Merrill, that um, once you mail out those applications, town clerks may be inundated with uh, applications returned to them requesting absentee ballots. And these are people that may not be eligible to vote absentee ballot based on our statute. Is that what you're saying?
4: No, no. I think there are many, many people who are uh, eligible to have an absentee ballot under our statutes already. I think there are people that want to, everyone to be able to vote by mail for this election, and that is not only not possible, I don't even think it's desirable, frankly. Uh, there are a lot of, it, it's no silver bullet to voting. Uh, for example, right now, the US Postal Service is talking about whether they're gonna have the capacity to be able to handle all the voting by mail that's going to go on. But I think in this instance, you have to remember, this is all about the voters. The, you have to be able to accommodate their vote however we can do it, and it's it's an emergency situation. This is like nothing we've ever seen, and it's very difficult to anticipate how many people are going to want an absentee ballot. My own personal view is I think a lot of people will still wanna to go to the polls uh, to vote, particularly in the general election. Uh, so we're just gonna have to do the best we can under these very uncertain circumstances, and we will have federal money, Uh, Part of this money is designed to be able to hire extra help in the town clerks and the registrar's offices should they need it to process people's votes. So I think that should take care of it. And that's why we're having every town submit a plan as to what their needs are. And we will reimburse any costs that they might have that's due to this COVID situation.
2: Secretary of State Denise Merrill is on Where We Live today uh, to talk about her plan, again, to make voting more accessible but also safe for both voters and poll workers. You can join our conversation, 888 720 That's 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Isabel uh, writes on Twitter, please implement vote by mail. Oregon is a model for this approach. So Oregon is one of these states that has all mail-in votes,
4: Yes, that's correct. And actually, they, uh, their voters express the most satisfaction with their voting process in the country, and they have the highest voter turnout in the country. And they are one of about, oh, maybe seven or eight states now that do, I wouldn't say entirely vote by mail. They do still have an election day process. But uh, now I think California, for example, about 80% of people vote either by mail or early. That's another form of voting that Connecticut still doesn't have. And that is other days of voting, which really does facilitate, you know, the voting process. Most states now, I think 33 or 35 states have early voting and or vote by mail. Uh, And I should describe the, the Oregon circumstance because it's so foreign to us in Connecticut. But basically in Oregon, if you voted in the last election, you are mailed a ballot not an application, a ballot. You then fill it out. You can ask anybody you want to fill it out. People describe it as sitting around the dining room table and talking about who you're going to vote for. Everybody fills out their ballot and mails it back or drops it off in ballot boxes, which are sometimes on street corners. So, uh, And that's how they process everything there. Now, I will say we could not do that right now, even if we wanted to, Um, They have a lot of processes. Technology has helped them. Uh, They have ways of checking signatures, for example. I know there's concern in Connecticut about would there be fraudulent ballots floating around. Uh, They have uh, a signature checking process. They have uh, technology that helps uh, process the Uh, The ballots as they come in, they have uh, machines that open the ballots, flatten them out, make copies and all that. So we have not developed any of that because we have never gone that direction in Connecticut. Uh, To go
2: back to um, action by either the governor or the state legislature, what are you hearing, uh, Secretary of the State uh, Merrill, in terms of, you know, will the governor have you talked with the governor's office in terms of of him putting out an executive order that again would help expand accessibility to absentee ballots? And what about the legislature? We know they're not meeting right now because of the pandemic. Um, How would they be able uh, to vote in special session? I'm just wondering what kind of conversations you've been having with state leaders.
4: Uh, we've been having many conversations with state leaders about all of this. Uh, there, is, there is support, certainly, for the voters. I, I, I really think people's hearts are in the right place. Uh, the governor has spoken frequently about his uh, concern about people, particularly over 65, not going to the polls, not working at the polls. And so we're we're just all trying to work within the law to figure out what we can do to define this in a way that would include uh, those, those people, should they choose to want an absentee ballot. That's the other factor, we, the human factor here. We don't really know uh, how that's all gonna work out. And I would go back to the Milwaukee example. It was interesting because uh, they assumed they'd have a lot of absentee ballots. They closed something like three fourths of the polling places in the cities. And then what happened was apparently the absentee ballots didn't get in in time, and a lot of them were left in the U.S. Postal Service offices and never got delivered. So they ended up having uh, huge numbers of people come out to vote in person. So there's all kinds of things we have to account for here, uh, including the uh, those kinds of eventualities, and that's why we need so much lead time for all this. I wanted to go back to
2: uh, something that you raised briefly about. Uh, Questions about a voter fraud—you uh, know—that is a concern that some residents have if they, uh, if that absentee ballots or mail-in voting was expanded. But what about uh, intimidation? We've seen uh, certain cities, like in Bridgeport, where you have campaigns hiring people to go around getting people uh, to. And to ha- to either ask for absentee ballots and then talking with them about who they think their candidate, uh, which candidate would be best. And, you know, people worry about that kind of coercion that happens. How would you address that?
4: Yes. Well, first of all, I would point out that nothing that I'm suggesting is changing the law at this point. It's really too late for that. We can't do that quickly. So um, we're working within the law as the, as it is. And we're doing absentee ballots the way we always have. And as I described it, lots of checks and balances. So nothing about that is changing. We're just anticipating there might be more of them. Uh, as far as, you know, this idea that there's coercion by campaigns, particularly in cities. Uh, Against frail elderly and housing projects and um, facilities for the elderly, assisted living. You know, I think it is a very real problem, and there is federal law involved that uh, requires all uh, places that have certain facilities to have supervised absentee balloting within those facilities. Again, there's it's not a perfect solution, but there there are lots of law laws regarding this sort of thing. I would also remind people that in places that do vote by mail, uh, trying to talk people into voting for your candidate is not against the law. And so here we consider that fraud, whereas in Oregon, it's expected that people will be talking to lots of people about who they're going to vote for. The coercion aspect is real, though. And as I say, federal law requires supervised absentee balloting. Uh, That those buildings are defined by local registrars as to which ones they are and so it goes back to the fact that this is all administered at the local level and overseen by registrars one from each party uh, to make sure it's fair so we are doing supervised absentee balloting it is another problem for this year because the emergency order also instructs us not to send people into nursing homes and other places where frail elderly are residing. So that's something else we're going to have to deal with uh, through either an executive order or some interpretation of the law. But, uh, and and people have been prosecuted. And in fact, there are investigations ongoing as we speak. The Election Enforcement Commission uh, actively investigates these allegations of coercion, and that's completely appropriate. Uh, One quick question from Facebook before we head to break. Uh, Megan writes,
2: is early voting prevented by our constitution or statute? Can we extend polling over a week to allow for fewer people at one time at the polls?
4: (laughs) Uh, The answer is yes. I have been fighting for a decade now to get the legislature to remove this language from the state constitution and just leave it in statute where I think it belongs. And now here we are in this situation where our laws are very inflexible. Early voting is another problem in Connecticut. Yes, the law in Connecticut is in the state constitution, which says we can only vote on Tuesday in November. Uh, There there was a bill passed this year, a constitutional amendment, that would allow Connecticut to have between three and five days of early voting, um, depending on how the legislature decided But that also only passed by a bare majority, which means it has to go back to another legislature They have to pass it again, and then it would go on the ballot in 2022 that would be the soonest we could change that provision.
2: I Wanted to take a quick call michelle's calling in Uh, michelle. Go go ahead. You're on where we live Uh,
0: Thank you, uh, so, um Uh, I want to thank Denise Merrill for the good work that she's been doing, and here's my question. So I've been an assistant registrar in Glastonbury for about the last five years, so I uh, very much know how the process works. And what I'd like to know is how poll workers are going to be uh, protected, because as we know, the process is when a voter enters the polling place, he or she has to go up to a table and give give his or her name and address, then they have to go to a... uh, a worker who hands uh, the person a ballot. And so, uh, and then the uh, assistant registrars often have to check the uh, identification and the records. And so, I don't quite understand how there's going to be social distancing uh, between the voters and the poll workers. And my other question is about um, same-day registration, which we will have during the uh, November 3rd um, uh, presidential election. And that, again, uh, is a very involved and complicated process in which poll workers become, become in direct contact with people who want to both register and vote on the same day. So what are the protections for poll workers? Thank you.
2: Go ahead, Secretary of State Merrill.
4: Yes, that's part of our safe polls plan. We will be purchasing with the federal dollars protective equipment for all poll workers in all towns and cities. Uh, We will also impose and make the towns impose the social distancing by keeping voters themselves six feet apart as they stand in line, which means we may have to move some polling places to bigger areas where there is room to do that. Um, As far as the actual contact, Uh, poll workers will have gloves. Uh, We will uh, be purchasing uh, pens so that everyone can have their own marking device as they come into the polls and won't have to use one that's been touched by someone else. But the the caller is correct. Uh, We can't eliminate every contact. It'll be more like what you're going through in grocery stores and other places. But I believe the poll workers themselves will be pretty Pretty well protected if we can manage to get all this protective equipment. And fortunately, we have the dollars to be able to purchase all that. So that's very, very fortunate.
2: You're hearing Connecticut Secretary of the State, Denise Merrill, here on Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nopithanschel. After the break, how are other states handling their elections and preparing for November during this pandemic? We talked to 538, and you can join us too on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nolpothanschel. I've been speaking with Secretary of the State Denise Merrill as we talk about the elections coming up in Connecticut. And joining us now by phone is Nathaniel Rakich, elections analyst at 538. And Nathaniel, welcome to the show.
1: Good morning. Good to be here.
2: So we were hearing uh, Secretary of the State Merrill talk about how complicated it is in Connecticut. I'm wondering how other states have been handling this question of expanding absentee ballots, especially in this pandemic. What can you tell us?
1: Yeah. So, you know, because we have this uh, extremely um, kind of balkanized system of election administration where the federal government doesn't run elections, but the states and within the states, the, you know, localities do, um, every state is basically doing something different. Um, you have states like Connecticut that are sending uh, absentee ballot applications to voters. Um, you have states, a couple of states are con- kind of gone, they've gone the whole way and are switching their upcoming primaries to entirely vote by mail elections. So uh, Nevada, Montana, those are two states that are doing that. Um, you have some states that are doing even less than Connecticut is doing. So, for example, um, there was just a primary in Ohio where uh, they didn't send voters ballots, they didn't send ba- voters applications, um, but instead they just sent voters postcards on how to uh, request a request for a ballot, essentially. Um, and, and you know, in in actually in Ohio, uh, they don't even allow ballots to be requested online, and so as a result, people basically had to write in to get a form sent to them, and then they had to send that form in, which, of course, was this multi-step process that resulted in uh, many people uh, not getting their ballots in time in order to vote. Um, In addition, obviously, the in-person voting element of things is being scaled back, although that can happen either in conjunction with expanding mail voting or independent of it. Um, So, for example, some states are consolidating polling places like Next Door, Rhode Island, uh, some states are kind of leaving things the way that they are and hoping for the best. And other states like Idaho are even uh, closing all polling places entirely, um, which is interesting and may actually be uh, illegal because you do uh, have to have some. There are certain voters who have to vote in person, such as people with disabilities, uh, people who are homeless and can't be mailed a ballot. Um, and so uh, it'll be interesting to see if there are any challenges to states that are kind of taking that extreme approach.
2: Uh, Nathaniel. We have about three minutes left, but I really—I what I really want to know is do states have time to set up voting by mail if there's in some way an expansion? Uh, we know Oregon and Washington have been doing this for years. They say it takes years to perfect this process.
1: Right, exactly. Um, so I wrote an article for my website, 538.com, um, where I looked at how prepared states were. And the vast majority of states are states like Connecticut, where, you know, maybe only 5% of voters uh, voted by mail in past elections. And it's really hard to kind of build up the infrastructure, especially on in a short time frame, to vote by mail for all the reasons that the secretary said. Um, the federal government, its official guidelines for switching to vote by mail, um, recommends that uh, states start in... In, on April 1st for the November election. And obviously, we're um, more than a month removed from that. Um, in addition, as you mentioned, the states that have done it uh, have all said that it basically, you know, it takes years to, to work out all the kinks in the process. Um, otherwise, you might get situations like you saw in Wisconsin, like you saw in Ohio with, uh, with vote voters not getting their ballots in time.
2: I wanted to go back to Secretary of the State uh, Merrill. We just have a couple of minutes left. In terms of uh, getting action again (laughs) to get us ready for August 11th, even if the presidential primary in Connecticut ends up being canceled, we still have uh, state primary races, don't we?
4: Yes, we do. Uh, Wouldn't be in every town. Uh, Many cities tend to have primaries because any town or city that's a kind of a single party town or city uh, ends up having some primaries. Uh, so far, I don't know how many we have slated yet. There's still time for pe- for challengers to file. So uh, yes, there will be a primary one way or the other, August 11.
2: And someone on Facebook wants to know, uh, Secretary Merrill, where can people sign up if they want to help with uh, helping voters register or even this vote by mail initiative? Because uh, you know,
4: time is of the essence. Yes, uh, there will be something on our website within the week uh, where we're recruiting poll workers. Uh, thank you for the question. And really I would encourage anyone who wants to do something civically engaging, helping your community sign up and we will have that up there soon and be able to uh, you know, hopefully recruit a new generation of poll workers and I hope you're some of them. <laughs>
2: Uh, we started the show talking about our, your segment, talking about this safe polls plan. When do you need to hear back from municipalities, uh, Secretary Merrill, so that they can get this money to help prepare and even get cleaning supplies for
4: polling sites as they open? Uh to be honest, I don't know what we've set as a timeline yet. We've been feverishly working just to get the plan together. <laughs> but it will, be, it will be soon, as, as the other caller said, uh, the, um, the fellow who was just talking about what happens in other states. Time is of the essence. We need to get these plans in place and get them moving. So I'm hoping it will be soon. Well, I want to thank Secretary of the State
2: Denise Merrill for coming on today, talking about your plan. We hope to have you back soon. Thanks again. Thank you, Lucy. Also with us, Nathaniel Rakich, elections analyst at 538. We'll be sure to tweet out some of his stories at Where We Live. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. I'm Lucy Nalpathangel on Zoom today. Thanks for listening.